Good morning, Grace Fellowship. We will be in 1 Corinthians today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. We're going through this letter to hear what God would say to us about being a community that is shaped by what Jesus has done. A group of people living in the world shaped by Jesus' death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, please grab the one that's in the rack in front of you. Page 955 is where we're going to be if you're using that Bible. Let's give attention to God's Word. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Just as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Because you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's a hard word, but it's a good word. God gives it to us because He loves us. And so let's ask for His help as we hear from Him. Let's pray. God in heaven, these are the passages that we would not choose Not if we're honest with ourselves. These are the sorts of words that we would rather just not have to deal with. But here they are in the Bible. We believe they're from you. That you inspired Paul to write them. And you inspired Paul to write them for our good. Even if it means some bad news for us. Lord, I pray that we would be helped by this word this morning. That your word 
would not bring further isolation or shame, but would bring healing to us in Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see you as the Savior of sinners. Sinners like us. People who are broken and who desperately need to be made whole. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get started, there are two books on the book table this week that I just want to make you aware of. The first book is by a man named Sam Albury, and it says, Is God Anti-Gay? The second book is just simply Transgender by a pastor named Vaughn Roberts. Both of these books are very short, uh, but they are much much needed, very necessary kind of starters to an important conversation. Those issues, those sexuality issues, obviously are very pertinent in our culture at the moment. But they are not the only things that will be in this sermon. I simply mention those resources to you because we don't know how to have those conversations. I can tell you we don't know how to have those conversations uh, because I don't know how to have those conversations most of the time. We need some guidance and we need some help. I encourage you to pick those books up uh, as you leave today. Out of order. Uh, You know what that phrase means. Um, We all know what it means. We all know when when you walk in, say, to a restroom, for instance, uh, and you see the sign that says, out of order, you know that it means broken, right? It means this doesn't work. But have you ever thought about why in the world we use the phrase out of order to describe something's not working? Ever thought about why those two things are connected at all, right? When we say, if you say something's out of order, right, an order, one, two, three, four, five, something is out of order means that it's out of place, or something that should be here is over here. And if you think about it a little bit more, that makes perfect sense then that it would explain something not working, like a toilet, for instance. If it's out of order, that means something is missing or something's in the wrong place and so things don't flow like they're supposed to, right? It's out of order. It's broken. And one of the beautiful yet terrible basic truths of Christianity is that you and me, every single human being on the planet, one of the basic truths of Christianity is that we are all Out of order. There are many things either missing in our lives or in the wrong place in our lives. We are disordered. We are broken. We are not working. And as a result of our disorder, our disordered affections, our disordered desires, we live broken, disordered lives. Just listen to what Jesus says. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking about some religious people who thought that they had it all together, right? They were very keen, they were very insistent on washing the outside. They were very insistent on uh, keeping up appearances while on the inside they were very much wicked. They were very much dirty. 
These were people who looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were wicked. Jesus says this, It is what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy. Even as I read that list, do you want to go back to the confession of sin? Do you feel like you missed something? Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus says all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus says that we're crooked deep down. I remember going to a a Christian school's graduation a number of years ago. You may have heard me share this story before. And uh, the commencement speech was very memorable. The, The basic gist of the message was, you guys need to band together because the world out there is evil. And what Jesus just said is, no, 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 the evil, the greatest evil is not out there. The greatest evil is in here. The reason there's evil out there is because it's in here. We are crooked deep down. We are out of order. We're broken. Corinth, the city that Paul was writing to, where this church was, Corinth was a place that idolized sex, actually worshipped it. The pagan uh, god, the, the, the patron deity of the city of Corinth was the goddess Aphrodite. On the Acro Corinth, the hill that overlooked the city of Corinth, the temple of Aphrodite was built, right? And Aphrodite, if you remember, is the goddess of love and sex. And to worship Aphrodite, you would have to give her your body. And so there were actually prostitutes. And that's what you did when you went to the temple of Aphrodite. And so this was a city not too much different from our culture, that worshipped the body, that idolized sex, and yet struggled to understand the real power and beauty of sexuality. It was disordered. And so, likewise is our culture. We have this powerful gift. We'll talk more about that. But it is out of order Our desires are all over the place. Something that's powerful and beautiful, we treat as casual. Our desires are out of place. Our lives are out of place. And it's into this mess that Jesus comes. Into this mess, into this out-of-orderness, comes Jesus with his good news. And what he does is he reorders us. He reorders us by showing us That we are not defined by our sinful desires. We are not defined. Our identity is not in what we do. Or, this is important, our identity is not even in what we feel. It's a very different message than what many believe. What many of us believe. Our identity is not even in what we feel. But what God has done for us in Christ. And so today, as we walk through this challenging passage, I want us, I want us to see this. 
But in response to a world that says you are what you do and you are what you feel, the gospel says that God makes us his and God makes us whole. First, let's talk about how sin distorts our desires. Look at verse 9. Paul begins with a list of people. And it may be a list that you, as you read that, you think, yep, that's exactly who ought to be there. And if you think that, you're probably not reading the list close enough. Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul says, there, there are certain people who will not enjoy fellowship with God forever. That's what's meant by the kingdom of God, this future reality where God will rule and reign and where his people will enjoy fellowship with him. There will be no sin, there will be no death. Paul says, and yet there are people who will not be there. There are people who will not enjoy being the kingdom of God. He goes on, he says, don't be deceived. And I want you to notice three things about this list, or a few things about this list. First, right, maybe the people that you would expect are on that list. He says, neither the sexually immoral, the word there Paul uses is the word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. And it means every form of sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's how Paul would have understood, understood it as a first century Jewish man. And that's how Jesus would have understood it as a first century Jewish man. So even on a purely academic level, there's really no other way to understand the way the Bible uses sexual morality other than anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Paul continues, the adulterers, which we would expect. He says, men who practice homosexuality in the Greek, there are two terms there. Uh, and they're translated and made into one phrase, in, in, uh, at least in the Bible that I'm using. But those two terms refer to the passive and the active people in a homosexual relationship. We might say the feminine and the masculine. Paul says both are out of order. They will not inherit the kingdom. But the second thing I want you to notice about this list is how much of it doesn't have to do with sex at all. Right? If you're anything like me, your eyes are drawn to a few key areas and you think, yes, that's right. Those people have no place with God. Read a little bit more closely. Paul says, idolaters. That means anybody whose life is controlled by something other than the one true God. So anybody who worships something other than God. Now you may think, oh, that's pretty good news then. I mean, I don't have a statue of Aphrodite in my house or any other deities for that matter. Paul says this, in case you're feeling pretty good about yourself, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, that covetousness, greed, is idolatry. That your life is controlled by your desire for something. Your life is controlled by your desire for more stuff. 
your desire for money, right? So an unhealthy view of wealth is idolatrous. And what do you know right here in the list? What does Paul say? Greedy people. Greedy people will not inherit the kingdom of God. A few years ago, we did a class on different cultural issues facing um, facing our culture, facing the church. And in that class, we talked about homosexuality. This was the same summer. This was right before um, the Supreme Court decision. We also talked about pornography, a very real and dangerous issue. But we didn't talk about greed. Because nobody in here is greedy. Nobody struggles with greed, do they? I mean, where's the book that said, is God anti-greed? That's not on the table. Because nobody thinks this is a problem. 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. Close to 50% of the world lives on less than $250. And greed's not a problem. While the Bible has several verses that deal with homosexuality, and they're there, and deal with sexuality, it has, the Bible has things to say about that. It has even more to say about economic injustice, about how we view our money, and about how we use our money. But that's not the first place we go, is it? And yet, Paul says, greedy people, those whose lives are controlled by their material wealth or lack thereof, will not inherit the kingdom. Revilers, verbally abusive people, won't inherit the kingdom. Do you have a habit of ripping people to shreds with your words, either spoken or typed? Paul has a hard word for you. These are what Jerry Bridges would call respectable sins. Right? Those sins that we tolerate in ourselves and in polite company. Respectable sins. And yet, those sins that if, we're don't, if we don't deal with them, will keep us out of God's kingdom. A third thing I want you to notice about this list, and this is where, this is where it gets even more difficult. Because I think this is where, this is where we wrestle. And so I want you to hear me all the way through. Desires and not just actions are sinful. There's a thread in our cultural conversation now that says, well, just because you feel something, that's, that in and of itself is not sinful. It's just the acting out of that feeling that's sinful. Friend, greed is a feeling. Covetousness is a desire. And it is condemned by Jesus. It too comes from the heart. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that if you, that if, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, if I hate you, if I'm angry with you, if I insult you, I am, I am guilty of murder. Jesus says in that same chapter that if I lust after a woman, if I look at a woman with lustful intent, it is the same as adultery. 
The verdict is the same. Nothing has come out of my heart, right? Nothing has evolved into action. And yet, Jesus says, you stand condemned because of your desires. All the way down. Man, we can judge actions. But God will judge our hearts and our actions. So we have to deal with our sin at its root. In parenting, it is very common for us to simply just deal with the behavior. Especially when we're tired, which is all the time, right? Whatever we can do to just get that child to stop doing that thing, that's enough. But the Bible tells us that that thing, whatever that is, that's out here, comes from in here. And we have to deal with that. Fourth, And this is maybe the most important thing to say, particularly if you are someone who looks at this list, and I hope every single one of you in this room is this person. But if you read this list and you say, gosh, that's me. I can't go. I won't be in the kingdom. I have those desires. I want you to know that this list is not this, this list is not struggling people. This list is not describing people who are hating their sin and trying to be rid of it. It is describing people who are set in their lifestyles and running away from God. So if you are a person who sees, who, who understands uh, that one of these things is you, if you are a person, if you see your name on this list, and I see my name on this list, and your response is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then you are not excluded from the kingdom of God. This is not a, this is not a list of struggling people. This is a list of people who are dedicated to their sin, and they want to live in it. So maybe you're fighting an attraction to the same sex. Maybe you're fighting an addiction to pornography. Maybe you're fighting an obsession with security and wealth. The point is that you're fighting. You're fighting your sin and you're not reveling in it. The people on this list are reveling in their sin and Paul says if they don't turn back, they will not inherit the kingdom. Now that word is important. So important that Paul says it twice. He says, they will not inherit the kingdom. Do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say they will not earn the kingdom. What's the difference between earning something and inheriting something? If you earn something, that means you worked for it. You did the job and you got paid. Paul's saying that's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven cannot be earned. The kingdom of heaven cannot be worked for. The kingdom of heaven can only be given. The kingdom of heaven is a gift of grace. So if you read that list and you think, okay, well, I got to get better so that I can earn my way to heaven, you're missing the point. The only way you can earn, well, there is no way to earn the kingdom. The only way you can inherit the kingdom is by God's grace. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Sin distorts our desires. Sin also distorts our actions. Look at verse 12. 
In my Bible, and maybe in yours, there, there are phrases there that are in quotation marks. It's likely that the Corinthians were using these as slogans. These were sayings they would use with each other to excuse their behavior, right? So they would say things like, all things are lawful for me. So what, what maybe they mean is, hey, listen, Jesus has already obeyed the law for me. I don't have to do anything else. Doesn't matter what I do. All things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Look, the reason we have these desires is so they can be satisfied. Probably using that phrase to say, listen, I get hungry and I eat. I have sexually de- sexual desires, so that's just part of it. The food is for stomach and the stomach for food. Right? They're using these slogans to excuse their behavior. And what's going on is in, in Greek culture, it was very common to separate the body and the mind. To say, well, my mind is over here and I believe and I think this. And it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. Right? The body is passing away, so let it go. Right? Do whatever you want over here. It's not going to have any impact on this. It won't, it won't have any impact on my spirit. Greek culture wanted to drive a wedge and separate body and spirit and say, listen, whatever's done over here won't impact this. That's modern hookup culture, is it not? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what we do over here. I mean, you only live once. So go for it all. It won't matter. We'll grow up one day and that'll all be that. These things that we're doing now won't really have an impact on what matters. And Paul says, no, no, that's not true. Paul says, in response, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful, beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What a great word, dominated. Paul says, when you live this way, you're allowing yourself to be dominated by your sin. And God has more for you than that. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food. Paul says God will destroy both. God will destroy both. And then he goes on to to these people who believe that the body did not matter. He says, no, it does matter. The body is not meant for porneia. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord. And he will also raise us up. Paul says we are whole people. We are not separated spirit and bodies. We are whole people. And we know that because God raised up his own body, right? Jesus' body was raised. Our bodies will be raised. The body does matter. Look at verse 14. These people who said, no, no, it doesn't matter. Verse 15, Paul says... Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who is joined, that word joined there could even mean glued. He who is glued to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for it is written the two will become one flesh. Paul says, no, the body matters because when... God has designed sex as a picture of the perfect union between two distinct people. It is a picture of unity. 
It is a picture of safety. It is a picture of trust. You are joining two people together. See, in the church, for a long, long time, we've been afraid to really talk about this. Our values come more from Leave It to Beaver than from the Bible. Where June and Ward had separate beds. And we tried to figure out what we were supposed to do with the Song of Songs. There's a whole book in the Bible about sex, guys. The first command that God gives His people is be fruitful and multiply. It is God designed so that two people will come together for their good and for the good of the world. It is an act of trust. It is an act of beauty. And when we use it, or rather when we misuse it, its power turns against us. Think of a, think of a sticky note. The first time you use it, right? Some, some of us are cheapskates, so maybe we want to try to reuse the same sticky note if we didn't fill the whole thing up. Right? The first time you put it down, you stick it on there, it works fine. Pull it off, put it back down, pull it off, put it back down. What happens? It loses its stickiness. God has created this act that we would stick together. And the more often we misuse it, we lose its stickiness. The body matters. Now you might say, well listen, if sex is so wonderful, uh, then what right do we have to withhold it from people? What right do we have to try to guard it inside a certain relationship? If sex is so wonderful and beautiful, why does God create boundaries around it? So that certain people can enjoy it, and only in certain ways, and other people can't. Why would God do that? Scott Sauls says this, Fire is beautiful. Fire is good. Fire is enjoyable. It is necessary. But only when it's enjoyed in its boundaries. As soon as you remove fire from its boundaries, it becomes deadly and dangerous. Paul says, you're joined to the Lord Jesus. You cannot be joined to another body. It is impossible. Remember who you're united to. You cannot, you cannot be casual with sex. He says in 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's a little bit of debate here about what Paul's saying. Is he quoting another slogan of the Corinthians? I don't know for sure, but we can at least say this. Is sexual sin worse, yuckier than any other kinds of sin? The answer is no. No, it is not. But what Paul is saying is that sexual sin does have a different impact on me spiritually. That it is of such a nature, it is so powerful that it has a a different impact. And so here we should be very careful. Paul says, flee, run away. Don't begin to say, oh, well, this will probably be okay. Just this once. 
Paul says, that's spiritual dynamite. Run away. So, sin distorts our actions. Sin distorts our desires. What do we do? This is, and up to this point, maybe you've thought, okay, this is exactly what I expected to hear in a church this morning. Don't do this. This is bad. And what I want you to hear is that every single person in the room stands under judgment here. We have not been the people that God has called us to be. We have not used our bodies or our mouths or our minds as God would have us use them. And so we need a good, we need a good word. We need good news. And so what we hear is that Jesus, if we uh, are living in distorted desires, living in distorted reactions, Jesus restores us body and soul. What do broken, weary people do with distorted hearts and broken bodies? Look at verse 11. After giving this list of people who will not inherit the kingdom, Paul says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. That's who you were. That past tense is incredibly important. That's who you were. But something drastic has happened. In the Greek, there are three. He says the word but three times to make the point. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You, but you, were sanctified. But you were justified. God has done something so incredibly drastic. He has done what we could not do for ourselves. He has taken our filth and He has washed us. He has taken our unholiness and declared us holy, sanctified, mine. He has taken our guilt and He has said, not guilty, justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in a world that says, hey, this is who you are. If you feel this way, if you have this desire, this is your identity. Paul says, not if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, that's not who you are. That's who you were. But now you're clean. Now you're holy. Now you're not guilty. What does Paul say towards the end of the passage? Verse 19, verse 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You have been ransomed. If you are in Christ, you have been ransomed from that slavery. Is that, is that life-giving? When we, when we look at our friends and we say, hmm, probably not ever going to change. Is it life-giving for your own sin to be able to say, I'm a drunkard? Is it life-giving when we trap ourselves in a way of life and in a desire that God says clearly He has not made us for? Is it life-giving for us to throw up our hands? Is that working for you? So just say, "Mm, 
Nothing's going to change. It's not who I. It's not who I am. I want you to hear good news in Jesus. Paul says you don't have to be there anymore. In Christ, you're somebody else. In Christ, you have a new identity. In Christ, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. There's a twofold call of Jesus. And it's universal. Every single person, every single sinner on the planet. Jesus calls every single kind of sinner to have life in Him. He invites every single kind of sinner to have life in Him. Right? He says, Come ye weary, and I will give you rest. And that offer is for everyone. There's not a soul that's excluded from it. Greedy and gay. The universal offer is to find your life in Jesus. But that invitation to life is also an invitation to death. The same Jesus who says, Come, you weary, and I will give you rest, also says, If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. He must deny himself. It's twofold. In order for us to embrace life in Jesus, we have to give up what we think life ought to be. And in case you think that's only for people who struggle with same-sex attraction, like if you, if you think that they have to give up more or you have to give up more, Jesus is pretty clear that that is a call to death for everyone. And as Sam Alberry says in his book, if being a follower of Jesus, if, if you being a follower of Jesus hasn't cost you something, hasn't cost you a part of your identity, then odds are you're not really following Jesus. So for those of you who are struggling this morning with a sin that you don't think other people will ever understand, I'm sorry. And I want the church to be a place where we fight for you and where we fight with you. Not fight with you, but fight alongside of you. Where we fight to point every person to Jesus. Where we fight to say, you are not defined by your past. You are not defined by some kind of preconceived cultural label. You are defined by what God has done for you in Jesus. Let's be that kind of community, shaped by that kind of cross. Now, it is a call to life, but that life means that we embrace some, for, some form of death. Two ways to look at this. We got this book uh, a number of years ago, May I See the King? And it's the story of Humpty Dumpty with a little bit added. You remember the story of Humpty Dumpty? He sat on a wall, not a wise thing to do for an egg. And he had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Kind of a depressing story for children to memorize. But this story has a happy ending. And this is what I want every single one of us to believe about the gospel but Humpty Dumpty prayed a great thing. He humbly asked, may I see the king? 
So a few of the king's horses and a few of the king's men picked up the pieces to help out a friend. They ushered him in to the most powerful one. How great he will be when he's met by the sun. And all the king's horses and all the king's men knew that Humpty would eventually mend. Because it doesn't matter what kind of wall or how high or how great or how terrible the fall. You see, all the king's horses and all the king's men are all broken treasures put back together by him. Those things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So wherever you are in your wrestling with sin, come to Jesus and let Him make you whole again. Let's pray. God in heaven, oh, we thank You for the mercy that is ours in Jesus. God, that regardless of where we are by circumstances, where we are by choice, how we've sinned, who has sinned against us, that there is a good word for us in Christ. That as broken as we are, we can be mended. That as guilty as we are, we can be forgiven. That if we call out to you, if we repent and believe in the good news, Boundless stores of grace await for us. And we can say with the hymn writer, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. God, as we come to your table, would you take pieces of bread and cups of juice and would you set them apart for that holy and mysterious purpose that we would actually commune with you spiritually, presently, And have a foretaste of that great communion we will enjoy with you one day in the kingdom to come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.